Welcome, everyone. I am Bob Wurzelbach, the director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro-Life. Each month, we'll discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena. We'll hear a personal story from someone deeply affected by that issue. And finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. This week's topic is appropriate medical care, both at the end of life and when one is not in the dying process. So let's talk now with this week's guest. Will you please introduce yourself? Thanks for having me, Bob. My name is Bobby Schindler, and I'm president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. All right, so Bobby, for those who don't know, you are the brother of Terry Schiavo, that tragic case out of Florida who many listeners may have heard of about 15 perhaps years ago, something like that. It brought a lot of attention to appropriate care for those who had disabilities. So could you maybe share that story with us first? Thanks, Bob. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. As you said, many people still might remember Terry's story. For those that don't, it really started in 1990. Terry was 26 years old. She collapsed at home while with her husband, Michael Shiloh. Due to her collapse, which is still unexplained, incidentally, we never found out what caused her collapse. But as a consequence of this collapse, she went several minutes without oxygen to the brain and sustained a serious brain injury. So really in a matter of just hours, Terry's life obviously had changed and, and so did my entire family's because we were then faced with a situation that we didn't know at the time because we didn't know the extent of Terry's condition. But we were faced with having to care for someone because they were able to care for themselves. So my family was in a position now, and, and Michael as her husband, we're in a position now because of Terry's brain injury to seek the best care for her and provide her treatment and therapy to try and improve her brain function. So initially, the prognosis wasn't too hopeful for my sister, but you know, after several weeks and some aggressive therapy and rehabilitation, Terry got to the point where she was not in need of any type of life-sustaining treatment, as they say. The only thing keeping her alive was food and hydration that was delivered through a feeding tube. Because of Terry's brain injury, she had difficulty swallowing and needed a feeding tube in order to uh, provide her, her her food and water. So without going into all the details, I mean, I can certainly answer any questions that you might have, but what had happened is initially uh, Michael Shava, who was Terry's guardian, he was in control of her medical care after a couple of years, actually in 1992, his loyalty shifted to a woman he was living with while still being married to Terry. And he went on this pursuit to essentially end her life. Our family was doing everything we could to try and stop him, to try and convince him to allow our family to care for Terry, but he would not allow that to happen. It finally went to court in 2000, so 10 years after Terry's collapse. And remember, there was nothing in writing. Terry had no medical directive or anything that stated what she would want if she ever became incapacitated. But nonetheless, Michael in 2000 petitioned the court in St. Petersburg, Florida, permission to remove Terry's food and hydration, her feeding tube, essentially. And our family objected to this. And there was a lot of legal battling during those many, many years before this actually went to trial. But there was a week-long trial in 2000 in front of a judge, no jury. After that week-long trial, the judge came back and granted Michael permission to take the steps to remove her feeding tube. And again, our family objected to this. We were shocked that the judge would allow this to happen, primarily because of two reasons, Bob. One is Michael had enormous conflicts of interest. He was living with another woman. There was a significant amount of money that was in a trust fund established for Terry that he was going to inherit upon her death. 
fabrication of Terry's wishes that was based on hearsay evidence that Michael claimed Terry would want to die if she ever became incapacitated, and the fact that there was a family that was willing and wanting to care for Terry, and we, we were explicit to the judge that we didn't want the money, we didn't want, the only thing we wanted was to bring Terry home and care for her, but the judge thought otherwise, and this was again in 2000, our family went through the whole legal process to try and stop it from happening. It lasted five years, eventually started to snowball as far as the attention that it received to the point where the governor of Florida, Jeb Bush, got involved, the legislatures got involved. First, it started out as, as a local story, but it grew nationally and then internationally. It actually extended to the halls of Congress, where Congress of the United States got involved, the President of the United States got involved, George Bush. It reached the Vatican, Pope John Paul was involved. There was cardinals and bishops involved. And despite all this, March 18, 2005, despite all these people and help that we were receiving, Michael prevailed and the courts prevailed and they were able to remove Terry's food and water, her feeding tube, on March 18, 2005. And she uh, went about two weeks before she succumbed to a brutal uh, and, and, and inhumane death by starvation dehydration on March 31st, 2005. In response to my sister's death, our family formed the Terry Shiloh Life and Health Network. Basically, we, we've been serving as patient advocates, helping families in similar situations to try and avoid or prevent what happened to Terry from happening to their family. We've been working now for about 15 years. So, Bobby, thanks for spending time on the show here. So you've started the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. That's been going on for over a decade. In your sister's case, we aren't even talking about someone, of course, who was in the dying process. Was there even at that time, was there disagreement among parties of whether she was dying? No, that was never a question. Terry had no terminal illness. There was nothing that would have led to her death. Terry was not in a coma. She certainly was not brain dead. There was a argument over her condition between my family's doctors and Michael Schiavo's doctors. But nevertheless, as I stated earlier, the only thing that was sustaining Terry was the same thing that keeps us all alive, which is food and hydration. And even to frame this, Bob, as an end-of-life issue can confuse people because it was never really an end-of-life situation. Terry was never dying. She only began the dying process when her food and hydration was taken away from her on March 18th. And the same thing happened to my sister that would happen to every one of us if you denied them our most basic and ordinary care, which is food and hydration. Did this case, which got a lot of national attention, does this change any state laws or anything like that concerning other people who are in similar situations? Well, disturbingly enough, Bob, and, and our family was not aware of this at the time, what we learned is that food and hydration through a feeding tube was once considered basic and ordinary care. At the time of my sister's case, it had changed. And there's a lot of reasons and dynamics how it changed, but Essentially, it's now legal in all 50 states to either remove or deny an individual like my sister and others a feeding tube because what was once considered basic ordinary care, a feeding tube, food and hydration, is now considered medical treatment, extraordinary care, artificial life support. And because of this change, and it's significant how it's been reclassified, it's significant because it's really exposed and put countless people like Terry, the elderly, and others who need feeding tubes in jeopardy of having their lives either ended or prematurely ended or not even given a chance to see if in fact they can recover. What happened to Terry is legal now in all 50 states and it happens every single day across countless nursing homes, hospice facilities, and, and hospitals where people are either denied or their feeding tubes are withdrawn 
that's a decision that's made to end their lives. These people are typically not dying, and they're able to assimilate or metabolize the feeding tube, meaning they, it's going to benefit them, obviously. They're not rejecting it. We work every day and try to help families that want to provide this for their loved ones, but whether it's the hospital or a family member, like in the case of my families, they're, they're trying to end the life of a loved one against families or a surrogate who's trying to, to care for these individuals. So the tube feeding is actually quite more common than many of us might think. So we're talking a little bit about ordinary care and extraordinary care. So for those who are a little unclear on what is the church teaching, we know that food and water is generally considered ordinary care. But there are circumstances, which was certainly not your sister's case, but there are circumstances where it is okay to remove or not insert in the first place feeding tube in certain situations. What would be the church teaching regarding those situations? You're right. It is clear in cases like Terry's that the church is crystal clear as far as our obligation to continue caring for that person. If they're able to assimilate or metabolize it and they're not dying, we are obligated morally to continue that care for that individual. And under no circumstances are we to deny or remove a feeding tube for the intention of causing death. Feeding tubes, as you said, are quite common. I read a report not too long ago where upwards of a million more people for different reasons need feeding tubes either for a temporary period of time as a bridge to help them recover. Perhaps they had a stroke or some type of brain injury or they're having difficulty swallowing and need to be taught to swallow again. Whatever the reason might be, but it could be a temporary solution to the issue that they're having or it could be more permanent, like in the case of my sister. March 2004, a year before Terry's death, it was March 18th, Pope John Paul II issued an allocution specifically, and, and we were told that the Pope issued this allocution to clarify church teaching on issues like Terry's because there was so much confusion about Terry's case that was being reported in the media, even among Catholic circles. And the Pope, again, made it clear that situations like Terry, regardless of the, the severity of the brain injury, if they are able to benefit and assimilate a feeding tube, food hydration through a feeding tube, and they are not dying, then as Catholics, we are obligated to provide that simple and basic care, ordinary care uh, for them. What would be a situation where it would be okay to remove the feeding tube from my loved one? What would be those conditions that would make that an acceptable time to do that? Well, good. That's a good question, Bob. And I get that question asked quite frequently when I'm out speaking about these issues. It's a difficult question. I mean, it, obviously, it depends on the individual circumstances, medically, and, and what's going on with that person. But you can make a general statement where you can say if someone is actively dying, perhaps the doctors or physicians are telling the family or, or whoever it might be that the patient is starting to reject the feeding tube or if it's causing them undue harm. I mean, that could be an instance where it would be appropriate to stop the food and hydration. We should always at least try to hydrate the individual upon death. And if a family is in consultation with a priest, a Catholic priest, then they can really assess what's going on and decide if it is appropriate to stop food and hydration. But to be quite clear, if someone is not dying, as in the case of my sister, despite the type of brain injury we have, we, we are to provide 
food hydration to, to that individual. So for example, when you're going in the dying process, your body starts to shut down and it's not able to metabolize food anymore. The doctors know when that starts happening, that would be an example of when you could remove, perhaps remove the feeding tube. You may remove a feeding tube, right? And, but still keep hydration going on because almost probably you would know better than I would, but perhaps almost in all cases, you would continue at least hydration right through until someone passes away. Whereas you could be dealing with a situation where you're not assimilating food anymore, perhaps, right? Is that correct? Yes, but that, that's my understanding, Bob. And hopefully you have doctors that understand the situation. And in the cases that we've been involved in thousands of cases in the past 15 years, and, and we always try and when families contact for these types of situations, try and always provide hydration and even comfort care and, and hydrating a person in that way, which would ease the suffering of the individual during those dying hours. And before we kind of move on from this, because we're focusing a lot right now on food and nutrition, but being in what they call a vegetative state, being unconscious, even now your sister was not unconscious, but for someone who is, and is in a vegetative state, but not otherwise dying, it is legal in all 50 states to remove food and hydration in that situation. But Catholic teaching would be that no, you should not be removing food and hydration in that situation, because you're killing them when you take their food and water away from them, if they're not dying from something else already. So that's a safe rule of thumb. Can we talk about other issues in the dying process? If someone's trying to decide what kind of care to provide for their loved one, right, who perhaps is dying of something, right? Do I do chemotherapy or not, for example? I don't know. Do I have this amputation or not? What are the guidelines that decide what's ordinary required care, if you want, what would be extraordinary care that you don't have to go through when you're trying to make decisions for a loved one? A lot of it comes down to this, the individuals, because there could be a lot going on with that person medically, and, and you really need to get a complete assessment from the doctors and the people that are involved in, in caring for the person. I mean, you can even look at ventilators. A lot of people might just assume that ventilators are always considered extraordinary care. Well, that's not so much the case. A ventilator could be used as a bridge. Someone might need a, vent, a ventilator for a short period of time, again, to help them to get past whatever it is that that's ailing them. So we can't just lump a ventilator as automatically extraordinary care and therefore deny it to a person. It could be considered ordinary care in cases where someone might need it just for a temporary period of time to help them recover. The Catholic Church has the ethical guidelines that are available to Catholics that they can use them to help us make these very sometimes difficult decisions when it comes to you know true end-of-life situations but again it's just difficult unless you know really the specifics of what's going on with a person just to kind of make some type of blanket comment or, or uh, assessment you really have to know all the details medically of the person and then use the information you have available to you and the people that are available to you to hopefully make the, the right decision. Obviously, your intention should never be to cause a person's death. You want to use that as a framework or basic guideline. I mean, if you want to keep that in mind, whatever type of treatment that you decide or don't decide, if it's going to lead or deliberately cause a person's death, then you need to look at the decision you're making and, and really think about next steps, as they say. So, but I think we have enough information available to us. You know, we have an organization, there's National Catholic Bioethics Center located in Philadelphia. They have ethicists that are available 24 hours, seven days a week. There's wonderful priests. Hopefully that we can consult if we are in these types of thorny ethical 
situations when it comes to someone's care, particularly at the end of life. Okay, so uh, so let's show that on the screen real quick then. So the ncbcenter.org, let me share that on the screen. There we go. ncbcenter.org is the website. That's the National Catholic Bioethics Center right here on the front page. You can go to consultation. There's a phone number, a main phone number, which if you're on the podcast, 215-877-2660. But if you're driving or can't remember that, just remember ncbcenter.org and you'll find the number there. Or there's an email address. You can send them an email and get some advice on a specific question. Anything else that you want that you know of you want to point out on this page? It's a tremendous resource for all kinds of questions when it comes to Catholic teaching. Any issue that you're you're looking for information, they're they've been around for a very long time. They have some I, I know some of the ethicists personally, and they're just a wonderful resource for Catholics when it comes to again some of these difficult questions and situations that might might be confronting. Right. So if you go, for example, to the resource page, I just clicked on the resource page and I clicked on bioethics topics, assisted suicide or brain death, Catholic healthcare, nutrition and hydration. You can get some frequently asked questions on those topics on those pages fairly easy. But generally speaking, as Bobby already mentioned, if you're not dying, then not caring for them is is what is going to end their life then that is not acceptable to do that, right? Or to admit that, whatever that is, because we are not supposed to be causing someone's death. Sorry to interrupt you, Bob. But if you go, if you do a Google search on Pope John Paul's uh, life-sustaining allocution, March 18th, 2004, it's not a very long document, and it's so eloquently written, as all his writings are. And it's very clear to understand. So I would recommend... Go on the Vatican website, and there it is. And you're right, it's not, it's not too long either. Seven paragraphs. So, uh, and we'll have that on our website as always, as well at CatholicCincinnati.org/being-pro-life. So you can read more about that. We can call it up on the screen. You want to say anything about your Life and Hope Network, the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network? Only that we have a, a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week crisis lifeline. If you're ever in a situation where you need help, please contact us. We've been involved in thousands of cases over the years, and we've been. We have a, a tremendous amount of resources that are available, and we can use them to help families. We've been pretty successful over the years getting families the help that they need, particularly if their loved one is being threatened to have their lives uh, ended. Please contact us. That's what we're there for. We're, we volunteer. Everything is free, and we do what we can to help uh, help families that are in crisis, uh, similar to what our family experienced. You can find that website at Life and lifeandhope.com. That's the address, lifeandhope.com. You can find the email and the phone number right there on the screen. If you're on the podcast, it's 855-300-HOPE, H-O-P-E, 855-300-HOPE. You can ask questions or get help if you need anything like that. In terms of ordinary and extraordinary care, see those those great people at a National Catholic Bioethics Center for other questions. We'll have resources on our website about it. But generally speaking, other things that you consider when you're talking about treatment for your loved one, the patient's condition, are they dying right right now? The expectation of recovery for whatever the treatment is, the potential side effects, these are all can be considerations of whether or not you should undergo a certain treatment. One of the more important things here to remember, I think you probably agree with this, Bobby, is, is whoever you want to be in charge of making those decisions, right? 
This is the time to, to tell people now. You should put a document in place that tells people, I want my brother or I want my husband or whoever it is that you want that you trust with those decisions to put in place to make those decisions for you if something were to happen so that we don't have questions about that. Who should be in charge of my care if I'm not able to speak for myself? And again, you can find on our website an example document if you need to do that. That's very important. It's probably one of the more important things that we spoke about today is you really need to make sure you appoint someone as your surrogate, someone that's going to speak for you if you're unable to speak for yourself. It's probably even more important than an actual medical directive that you would fill out. For me anyway, again, I'm not an attorney, but I have a medical power of a surrogate, someone I assigned to speak for me rather than anything I've, I've filled out on paper, like a, a medical advance directive, I believe if you're, you're better well suited and protected, if there is nothing in writing, this is just my personal opinion, but you do have a surrogate that you've appointed in the case that you have you become ill and able to speak for yourself. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Make sure you appoint a healthcare surrogate and those forms are available, as you said, on your website. But that, that's probably more important than anything. If you do need these decisions to be made, you have someone that you can trust to make them for you because I can't tell you how many times uh, we've dealt with families where their loved one has been, you know, they're able to speak for themselves and they didn't assign a surrogate. And then there's a, a battle who's going to make decisions for that loved one. And so it's really important that you, you make sure you sign the person you want that's going to be speaking for you uh, on, on something that could be the, the difference between life and death. Right, exactly. And again, you don't have to hire a lawyer to do that. Go on our website, you can find sample forms, assign a person that's right, because you can't cover in a piece of paper every situation, do this in this situation that you can't, you don't know what the situation is going to be. Appoint a living person that you trust to be that person and have more than one. And I also advise people, if you do go to a hospital and, and you're of sound mind, I would not fill out any type of medical directive at the hospital is going to try and give to you. Even if you don't have one filled out, do not fill out anything that a hospital puts in front of you until you make sure you know exactly what it was you're assigning. But I would, that's why it's so important to appoint someone as your, your surrogate so you don't have to worry about signing any of these directives or information the hospital might try to get you to sign. Right, because Bobby, as you know, typically a generic form like that is going to say, remove food and hydration if I'm in an unconscious state right, or something, that's going to be typically there. From every one of these forms that I've seen, it really puts the decision-making power in the hands of strangers, uh, whether that's the ethics committees at the hospitals, the physicians, uh, whomever. That's why you want to make sure you have someone that's going to fight for you, a, a heroic advocate, someone's going to stand in and fight for you if it gets to that point to make sure you get the treatment you need. Thank you so much for spending time with us today talking about end of life and not end of life medical care issues and what is the church teaching on it and sharing your story with your sister. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's my pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. Anytime. I'd be happy to come back and I appreciate your time today. God bless you. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our Being Pro-Life series. Head to the website, view all the links talked about in this episode at www.catholiccincinnati.org slash being-pro-life. Thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to being with you next time.